Welcome back to Pod is a Woman, an honest, unfiltered conversation about the current state of politics and pop culture from three veterans of the Obama White House who also happen to be friends. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And with the verdict of the Derek Chauvin trial coming down this week, we are happy to be joined by our friend Deisha Dyer, founder and CEO of Hook and Fasten and the former White House social secretary. With the verdict coming down this week, I think like so many other people, I was watching the trial from my home and I was holding my breath. I was waiting because for so long we've seen justice and accountability denied. We've seen so many people be murdered senselessly and not have any accountability for the actions of police officers or others who took part in these atrocities against specifically black and brown communities. So when the verdict came down and it was guilty on all three charges, there was definitely this sigh of relief. And it wasn't because, you know, there's joy in it. It's just that finally someone was being held accountable for what they had done. And I think, you know, we talked before the verdict and I wasn't sure what to expect, even though we all saw the video, even though we all have seen this with our own eyes. Too often, as you said, Darren, we haven't seen people be held accountable for their actions when they abuse power. And so this was a start, but I'm so thrilled to talk with Disha today because I feel like for all of us who want the world as it should be, equal justice under the law and all people having rights, we have more work to do. I shared how you felt about being actually shocked in the verdict that we received. We've gotten so accustomed to not having a guilty verdict. And and it really says something that it was like an overwhelming kind of feeling of surprise that we actually had a guilty verdict this time. And something that we're about to speak with Disha about is the fact that, you know, everyone's talking about this wasn't justice, this was accountability. What does it look like to now continue this drumbeat and advocate for meaningful change in policing? And Disha, someone who is especially well-suited to talk about this with us today. So let's hear right from Disha. Disha Dyer is the founder and CEO of Hook and Fasten, a social impact agency that specializes in transformational relationships between corporations and communities, diversity and inclusion, and executive operations. Disha is an award-winning strategist, on-the-ground community organizer, and executive operations expert. She also served as White House Social Secretary in the Obama White House. Welcome, Disha. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. I love you all. It's great. Thank you. We love you back. And you have such an incredible personal story. At age 31, you actually entered the White House as a community college intern and rose to the role of White House social secretary. What was that experience like? You know, it, it was, you know, first again, I want to say thank you for being here. I think after the news of the last week, it's like even virtually good to be with friends. And so right. it's good to see you all. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I was in the, I interned in the department that Joanna was in. Um, and, you know, I did not have any connection to politics or the campaign or anything else. I mean, I didn't even know who worked at the White House. I just was like, like little elves. Like I had no idea. Right. <laughs> and I think that um, for me, I could not, I couldn't afford to take off of, of my jobs that I had to go campaign for Barack Obama. I had no money to be like, here's a donation. Like I didn't have anything. Um, 
But I think like most of us, right, we were very captivated by, you know, Barack Obama himself and Mrs. Obama, but also just like for the first time, hearing words and issues on a national stage that really pertain to us and our communities. And that for me made me perk up because I was like, you know, you're talking about like, you're actually saying like black people, <laughs> you're like, you're like, mm -hmm. like going to barbershops and neighborhoods and like, you're saying things about, you know, LGBTQ in the, in the military. And I think I was too young, uh, you know, in the Clinton years, it was like, it was, I paid attention, but not really, you know? And so I think I was very mesmerized like everyone else. And I was a community advocate and I didn't understand how that related to politics. I didn't know the connection. I just was not educated. Um, so when I decided to um, apply for a White House internship, it was strictly, <laughs> honestly, um, I wanted to be part of the Hopi Changey and all that stuff. But also my boss at the time where I worked was really a Republican. And back then it was like fun to joke around about it. It wasn't as bad as it is now. Mm -hmm. um, and I ripped the picture of Barack Obama out and I put it on my desk and I was like, well, you know, when he wins, I'm gonna leave him, you know, leave you and go work for him. And it was a joke. Um, so when he won, I was like, oh my God, I have to go through with my word and figure this out. <laughs> um, and so that's how, it, you know, and I didn't think I'd ever get chosen. You know, I was 31, I was in community college and part-time community college. Um, but I got, was very lucky, blessed that I had someone on the other end, Patrick Witte, who I got along with great when we interviewed. <laughs> and he was this kid from Iowa, younger than me. And he was just like, you know, your background in hip hop and community and writing is what we need. Um, and I was just like, what, that's great. Does that mean I got the internship? And, and, uh, and I did. And, you know, after the internship, you know, honestly, my life was changed because it was the first time that I did something that I actually was proud of, that I was like, I did that myself. Like, I could never go back, <laughs> you know? Um, and I quit my job that I had in Philadelphia. And literally three weeks later, Alyssa called me and said, we have a position open. Um, and I moved back and uh, to DC and then got promoted from there and ended up social secretary in 2015 and graduated college then while I was there in 2012. And so it was a it was a whirlwind. Um, and and uh, and I still haven't grasped. I still haven't. I'm sure you all are like that. You haven't. I don't think we've all grasped all that we experienced yet. Like we know, but we don't know. So, no, yeah. not at all. It's so it's so funny. I didn't even realize that you graduated while you were there because it's something yeah. that I did. Mm -hmm. And I thought that I was alone in having gone into the White House and started on my first day without a college degree. That's yeah. That's really incredible. Well, when we get together sometimes, and especially when the three of us are someone from the Obama administration, when we get together, it feels like this incredible walk down memory lane. And mm -hmm. you were just privy to so many monumental yeah. moments in the Obama administration. Which one sticks with you the most? Oh, Darian. Sorry. Um, <laughs> you know, I would say, I mean, there's so, there, there so many, but what I'll say is, um, one that Joanna probably really remembers is when I was an intern, um, and you too, Darian, actually, you were on the trip. Um, and there was the Fort Hood shooting yeah. and, um, in Texas. And I was just, I was an intern and, you know, Katie Lilly, um, was in charge of press and Joanna was there and all of the, um, team was in, in Asia, the advanced team, because President Obama was going to Asia and they needed people to go to Fort Hood, Texas. And they were like, you know, Hey, like pack your bags, you're going. And I'm like, 
what? Like, I don't, what are you talking about? Like, I had no idea, like, what I would do. Like, you're helping press. I'm like, press do what? Like, and we had to put together, we put together, um, you know, that memorial service mm-hmm. in 48 hours, if you remember. I do. And, and, and I was, and it was a whole nother world for me, but also I got to fly back on Air Force One and I'm as an intern. And I remember Darian, you and Kristen Jarvis, I mean, being like, I don't know where to sit. And I turned to you both because you were like two black women. I was like, where do I sit? They were like, your name's on the seat. I was like, my name's on the seat. <laughs> and Darian was like, like, so I was like, it's right there. I was like, oh my God, can I take this? She's like, yes. <laughs> you know? And, and so call I, someone from the operator. I call someone, right? And so I think that for me, that was just like, that stands out to me because I think that's also the point that I showed my maturity of being 31, right? And had to, I had to snap into, it wasn't you were an intern, you were part of the team and you did what you were supposed to do because it was, you know, the country was in mourning, but this base was in mourning. Right. And so I think that like that moment stands out because I think that was to me, the moment that was just like, I can't believe I'm on Air Force One. And then Reggie introduced me to the president and he's like, oh, I didn't know we let interns fly the plane. Like, he said it like, you know, <laughs> casually. And I said to him, I was like, well, sir, I'll jump out. Like, who the heck says that? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, how they even hired me back after I said that is just like, you know, but that stands out to me the most, I'd say. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It is funny. The people don't know that you get, like, a little name card every time you go yeah. on Air Force yeah. One. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, welcome. I sometimes, like, I think back to those days, and you know I've adored you since we met mm-hmm. in scheduling advance. Um, we were all kind of at this moment where our career shifted, Mm-hmm. because now we were working at the White House, and I think most of us were busy just getting stuff done, right? Mm-hmm. And I can't believe it's now been more than a decade since we've more known each other. Hugh is nine. I know. My son, know. who you were there for the baby shower, he's Literally, nine years yes. old. It's, un- <laughs> it's unreal to me. Like, I, like unreal to me. Like, when I see, like, people's kids, even Darius, when I see, I'm like, I'm I sorry, know. what? Like, yeah. you know, like, like, your kids are what? Like, I can't believe it. <laughs> well, because we all still look the same 10 years oh, later. Oh, yeah. So we look the same. I think about what we didn't know. Yeah. And, like, what advice would you give your wow. younger self if you were able to go back to that moment where you were starting your journey then? You know, that's a great question. And I think that I would, the advice I would give myself in which I still give myself, like, right, like the journey is constantly going, um, you know, is that you have, you are worth it with everything that you have, like who you are. I think for me, I got into it and I was like, I don't want people to know I'm in community college. I don't want people to know I'm 31. And literally I like made this whole narrative around like what people would think and no one cared. Like, it was like, literally like, everyone's like, okay, great. So can you do this? And I like, was like, oh my God, they're going to find out. Like, oh my goodness. And then they're going to like make me leave. And I realized that like, I was brought on as an intern for who I was and what I've already done. Right. Right. So I think that I would give my, that advice because I think that we are constantly looking for the extra. We're constantly looking for the thing that's going to validate us, but that's already exists in who we are. And that getting that internship you know, for me, you know, really spoke to that, but I didn't see it at the time. You know, I, I didn't see it at the time. So I would say that because I think that would have saved me probably a lot of therapy money, right? And a lot of like, <laughs> um, to be honest, and a lot of just like, you know, let me you know, keep up with the Joneses so I can look valid so you can choose me and not realizing that I didn't need to do that. I didn't need to do that. And we don't need to do that now. You know, like 
what you have is enough. And I think that it's hard in this world to realize that, especially, you know, as a black woman, it's just tough, you know, especially when you've been told that it's not. So it, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a lot, again, a lot of therapy to get out of that, to get out of that, you know, that thinking. Well, you are always enough and we were always admiring you. you. Thank you. And I love you all. That is <laughs> I almost said like so five true. times, whole trip. Like, <laughs> we were in Columbia together. Like I literally had memories with all of you. Like oh, all yeah. of you. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I want to switch topics a little bit to something that is a little heavier and has been on our hearts and minds this week. And it's George Floyd and the drive to end racial injustice and unjust policing practices that exist in our country. And, you know, this lead up to this week's verdict, the 300 plus days of waiting, the continuously having to view this video of yeah. this man's life slipping away. Yeah. under this officer's knee, all the protests, the yeah. toll that it's taken on black and brown communities. And I remember hearing you speak once and you said that this is a time of great reckoning in mm -hmm. this country. What did you mean by that? You know, it, it's it's really heavy. And I think that, you know, it's it's hard because words fail me. There are no more words. I have nothing more to say. Like, you know, even when somebody says, like, what do you think? I'm like, <laughs> like, what do you want me to say that I haven't said before? And what are you looking for in my answer, you know, that you don't already have? And so, you know, what I meant by that is, like, it is a time that we have come to a head, that we have no choice but to fix what is in the mirror, that we have no choice but to face this, and we have no choice but to do something about it. Um, but I tell you what, Darian, to be completely honest, because we're all friends, is I was speaking from a very idealistic, like, you know, vibe of like, things are going to be okay. And I can't say that I feel that way anymore. I don't know. You know, I feel like, um, you know, even with the verdict yesterday, to be honest, you know, we, we literally saw it all. Like, you know, I didn't watch it, but we, it's on video. So it took a jury and all those months to say that he is convicted of murder. And it took America you know, waking up, seeing us as entertainment. Like you literally had to watch a video, like, you know, like just like any old thing that you watch on Netflix to say, oh, this is a problem. Like, and that to me is not something that we need to celebrate. And so I think that where we are with this country is like, you know, you are not going to see calm and you are not going to see peace. And I think people need to accept that. And it's, and it's, it's what we've built. It's what we've tolerated. And so the reckoning, you know, to me was like, you know, you are here, it's either going to crumble or it's going to, it's going to build. And even after yesterday, I can't say that I think there, I don't have any more hope than I did the day before. And, um, and I'm sad about that. You know, I'm sad that I didn't have the joy that other people were like victory and justice. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, no. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. Um, and so that's where I feel like that we are. Um, you know, my hope lies in many things. My hope lies in, you know, your children, like both of your kids and Hugh. And my hope lies in like the fact that my friends are having these conversations with their children. I don't know about right now, but I know that in the future, like, I don't think, you know, your kids are going to tolerate this. You know, I don't think Hugh is going to sit beside and let somebody be treated that way. I don't think your girls are going to do that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think that. So I think that that was where I'm putting my hope in the fact that we're teaching the future better than what we were taught, what we tolerated and, you know, and what we pass down in some ways. And so I think that, you know, that's what I meant by that. Um, you know, yeah, that's what I meant by that. 
to that point, there's been a rising chorus of people saying that this was not justice, but actually accountability. Where do we go from here to ensure that we continue to advocate for meaningful change in the areas of criminal justice and policing? That's a that's a great question. It's a, really, it's a loaded question, too. And, I'll, you know, I'll keep it a buck. I'm from Philly. You know, I think that it needs things need to be dismantled and rebuilt. I think that you can't build on a faulty foundation. If you build a house on a foundation that's cracked, the house is always going to fall. You rebuild the house on that foundation, it's still going to fall. It's going to keep on falling. So you need to fix the foundation. And so I think that's what we need to do is we need to dismantle the systems that are in place that continue to uphold this oppression, right? And they're rooted and they're 400 years old. Going back even before then, right, with Native Americans, it's over 400 years old, right? And so I think that what we need to do is say that we need a whole new regime. Like, you know, thankfully the election, you know, we had that in November on the, you know, on the presidential level, but it doesn't stop there, right? We need a regime change from school boards to law enforcement to heads of military offices, everything, because what we are doing is all we're doing is putting people in place to uphold the structures. And I think that what we need to do is attack it from all sides and realize that all of us need to be part of the solution. You don't have to be in the streets protesting. You don't have to give millions of dollars, but what can you do? Like you can do something. Like I refuse to believe that people are like, well, I don't really get involved in politics, but you're on this earth, which means you do like that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you do. So like you can use that line all you want to. So but where I feel like we have to do is we have to go back to the beginning and we have to rewrite this from the beginning with the the with black people in mind. Right. Mm-hmm. With like, you know, getting rid of terrible laws like, you know, about weed or anything else like decriminalizing things. And I think that these are things even that I'm shocked to say out of my mouth because I 10 years ago, I would have never said anything like this. Right. But I'm learning. You know, just like, you know, I'm black, but I'm still learning about what happened to our people. Right. And we need to do that in order to dismantle and then rebuild the system. And I don't think it's as hard as we think it is. I just think that we're just used to the oppression. (laughs) And Mm so it's more comfortable because we're used to it. You know, it's um, I kind of go back and forth, too, on that, like hope and despair spectrum. Mm -hmm. And what gives me hope is that I believe that America, if we take this opportunity, you know, we will be a richly diverse nation mm-hmm. very soon. And if we use our diversity as our strength, that we have so many people from countries around the world, we can solve global problems. Mm-hmm. And if we actually rebalance power so we get to equal justice under the law, mm-hmm. that it benefits everyone. Mm-hmm. But in the history of democracy, and I think that's what we're kind of looking at, right? We're mm-hmm. looking at this moment where democracy is a, a, attacked around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There have been some heinous things that have happened to any population that isn't a majority, whether mm-hmm. it's Christian in a country or yeah. Muslim in another country. Yeah. or. And so I keep going like, is it actually like setting up a standard of human rights or something? And I think you're you're onto so much like, you know, if we show our war crimes, the the things that have happened in our past, mm-hmm. will that wake people up to mm-hmm. realize like what we need our future to be and how do we make that progress mm-hmm. if we can get to that better angel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll say this, like, you know, I think that you're, you know, I agree with you on many things, but I'll say that, like, 
you know, <laughs> like, I don't know what people have to be shown or what they have to learn to be good human beings. You know what I mean? Like, it's almost like I'm not, you know, we all, you know, know about slavery. We all know about, you know, uh, what happened to Native Americans. We all know about all of this. And yet it still has not changed. Right. And so I believe that, and it's unfortunate, and I hate to say this, but I believe that these heinous things have to actually hit home in a place of power in order for us to change them. Great example is Sandy Hook, like l legit, like children, nothing happened. So it, it's going to take, and it's unfortunate that it's going to take until somebody in power who has the kind of influence to that something happens to their family and their friends on the level where it affects their money and affects their heart for us to change. And that's unfortunate, but we've tried all of these democratic ways, you know what I mean? Like, you know, we've tried and we're still, you know, fighting oppression. We're still fighting racism. We're still fighting these things. And I don't know how much longer Pete or patient black people, especially I'm going to speak for black people because I'm black can mm -hmm. be like, I just, I don't got it. Like, I'm not going to educate you. Like, I'm not like for real, like, you know? And so I think that that's, you know, unfortunately where we are, that it's going to take, you know, unfortunately something burning down before we can rebuild it authentically. Because even when you balance power, you're balanced power with somebody who didn't want you in power, you know? Right. So you're balanced. So you're just like, Hey, I'm on the same level as you. Great. Now I have to fight mentally, physically, everything else, just to show that I've I deserve to be on that level. That's exhausting. Now, then you're wearing me out mentally, which is a whole nother thing when it comes to oppressed people. You can talk about that finances, you can talk about all these things, but the mental health aspect of what happens to people that are oppressed in this country is far beyond almost anything that we've ever talked about. So even they're saying, oh, we got a black president, we got this, we got this, but look how much mental anguish came with that. And not only that, look how much like now other people are just like, well, you had a black president, you're fine. You know, so it's just like, nah. So I think that, you know, part of me is like, I wanna, I wanna be in the space of democracy. I wanna be in the space of believing, but I think it is way past that point. I think it is way past that point. And, and I'm hoping that I'll get back to that point, right? But right now I'm not there because my hope is just, you know, you know, we're looking at a young woman that was shot last night, 16 years old, you know what I'm 16. saying? Like, and what do we hear about her? She had a knife and she was in foster care. Like, so you're like, I mean, it's just like, so that's the validation. Like, yeah. so we, the conversation about balancing, we're not even there. You know, we have to first be seen as human. And right. I think that this country doesn't do that. And we saw it so much in George Floyd and in so many cases before him where you dehumanize the victim, the person whose life you have taken from them at a child, a 13 year old and Adam Toledo in Chicago and mm -hmm. then Micaiah um, last night. It's just like you can't even sit in the verdict and what accountability came from the verdict because within an hour, a 16-year-old, and yeah. to have one of the officers shout out to the crowd who's videotaping Blue Lives Matter as mm -hmm. if in any way Blue Lives equate to any which one. anything. Yeah. yeah, it's true. And I think that we can even see the pattern of like, George Floyd, he's, you know, there was a, there was a drug problem. Adam Toledo had a gun, you know, uh, Dante, right. He, you know, he was speeding now this, you know, Micaiah, she, she had a knife and was a foster care. It's just like, you know, like it, it's, it's, it's gross. So, so it's hard for me to look at all that, absorb all that and say, 
<laughs> I, I want to be democratic in my actions. It's hard. Like, it's hard. I have nieces and nephew. Like, it's it's hard. You know what yeah. I mean? I look at Darian's. It's hard. Like, I'm ready to fight, you know? And, yeah. and I hate that I'm like, I'm also from Philly, right? But like, I'm ready to, I'm just like, you're not going to do that to these girls. You're not going to do that to the kids. Like, I'm going to go down swinging. I voted. Now what? And right. so that's the mood. That's the vibe I think a lot of people are in, which is why sometimes I take myself off of social media because I'm like, <laughs> I don't got it. Like, I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't got it right now. So it's, it's tough. Yeah. Is that what made the difference this time, which is people did hit the streets and fight this mm -hmm. whole year? Is this mm -hmm. why we saw that different verdict? You know, um, I don't think so. I think that we saw a different verdict because um, they wanted to make it about uh, him and not about the system. And so I think that he was like a sacrificial lamb, to be honest with you. Like, you know, let's see what book deals he gets. Let's see, like, you know what I'm saying? Let's see what the sentencing looks like. Like, I'm waiting for that because he'll be in jail for five years. And next thing you know, it's out on good behavior. He's stacking at the library. He got a book deal. Like, so I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't, I see through the verdict. I don't, I don't see it, you know, and, 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 you know, I hope I'm wrong, right? I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think it's because people hit the streets before. You know what I mean? Like, and nothing really happened. I think that he was like a sacrificial lamb and he went, like, basically they made him go down for a system that needs to be changed. In talking to you and hearing your perspective, it reminds me of why we started Plot as a Woman, because we wanted to bring these unique, dynamic conversations to the table with women who are mm -hmm. a part of the communities that we care so much about. But you've been doing this for years. Yes, so yes. tell us what yeah. motivates you to <laughs> elevate voices in the stories of the unheard. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Um, yeah, I've been doing this since I was 14. And, you wow. know, my first activism started, um, you know, I think I'm older than all of you, but like my first activism started um, really with HIV AIDS and Ryan White, who, if you remember, was a young boy that had contracted AIDS from a blood transfusion and he lost all his friends at school. And I was like, I want to be his friend. Like, you know, my dad's like, you can't go be, you can't move to Indiana and be Ryan White's friend. And I'm like, well, what can I do? And he's like, well, you can volunteer and meet some other children who might have HIV AIDS. And so I really started then um, reaching out to that community because I thought it was gross how they were talking about people who had HIV AIDS and, and, and community work became a foundation of everything I did ever since then, you know, before the white house, I had two programs focused on, you know, hip hop and HIV AIDS and women and trans women in the streets. And, you know, and even at the white house, um, you know, I kept this completely quiet that I volunteered once a month at a shelter. And then also a place called guest house that really welcomed women that came from prison and they had no idea I worked at the white house and didn't tell them until I got promoted and they saw it in the paper and it was important to me to stay close to the community because even when you go into those, you know, the grounds of 1600, which we've all been, it's like hollow ground. It's like, it's like beautiful and you know, gorgeous. And like, you have a gate and you're like, Ooh, but I never wanted to forget like who I was fighting for. And I also felt very normal around those people because those are my people. That's the community in which I come from. And so I always knew I had to represent them. So being social secretary, and even deputy social secretary was an extension of that because I knew that if I got in that role, I could help influence who came to the White House. Like 
who got to sing and who, what choir got to sing for the Pope? And what, you know, when we're doing a thing on houselessness, like, you know, I can call the mom and pops in Philadelphia and say, the president's doing this convening, like, I want you on this. Like, I got to influence bringing my community there. And, you know, Darian, like, it, it became an automatic to me. I didn't understand, like, you know, how people didn't do community mm-hmm. work. I was like, I don't understand. Like, as a social secretary, and I still found time to do it. I didn't understand. I don't get it. Um, but for me, it's just like if I'm not connected to that to the community in every which level, I rise and I'm failing because I'm out of touch. And so, you know, for me, that's important. And it's also important that I don't take up space. You know, so it, you know, if I do something and that's not my community, I'm like here actually have my seat. Like actually, I'm physically getting up. Like I'm not speaking for you, and that's a power and a privilege and a platform that I'm able to do now that I was at the White House, right? And mm-hmm. did all these great things, and so it means the world to me. You know, it means the world to me to always be connected to the community. And it was this way before the White House, so it, you know, it's been this way for twenty something years. You know, so yeah. Well, you you have definitely been busy, and I know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think so many of us have been touched by so much of your activism. I um, have an uncle who who died of AIDS um, back when it was very... I think we talked about that before, yes. I think we did. Mm-hmm. And it is. It's, you know, I think that sometimes it takes being affected by someone to know just how... Um, how I guess other people will react. So I've mm-hmm. always been grateful for your activism, but you just started a scholarship with other black women appointees yeah. <laughs> from the Obama era mm-hmm. called Black Girl 44. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about that and how can people get involved? Yeah, you know, I just start stuff, y'all. I just like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I need to stop. Like, I need an intervention for real, for real, for real. For real. Like, for real. Um, because we'll I just see, we'll I be just, there for you. I just, I, like, I, I see a hole and I'm like, I got to fill it. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, at some point, sometimes, go back to Darian's question a little bit before I answer that, is like, sometimes you have to recognize when your community work is becoming too much. Just because it's good works doesn't mean you should become obsessed with it. And I realized, like, through therapy, I'm like, my, my therapist is like, like you use their you know, community outreaches as a crutch to avoid all the other stuff in your life. I'm like, no, I don't, you know, <laughs> but I do. Um, so, but the scholarship, um, the scholarship is something that it was actually started in 2019. And I started it um, because, you know, there's a lot of unpaid internships in Washington, D.C. There shouldn't be, but there are. Um, and, you know, for us at the White House, even when I was an intern, there wasn't a lot of Black women interns. And I kind of sought out then to do something about it, but just life happened, whatever. Um, and the scholarship in 2019, I got 55 women together who worked at the Obama White House. I literally randomly emailed them all. I was like, hey, do you want to contribute to the scholarship? $100. They were like, okay. You know, so I was like, great. Um, so we started the scholarship then, and then we took off a year for COVID. And then this year we came back and opened it up for any Black woman that worked across the administration in any in any capacity. Um, what we heard in 2019 is a lot of the Black women that worked in the administration felt excluded from it. Um, but that wasn't, the point was is that I had to get people who trust me with their money because we're not a 501c3. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we're just, I'm taking your money and I'm giving it back out. So there isn't really like, we don't have all that overhead and everything. So the scholarship this year is giving out 10. Um, we're giving out 10 scholarships um, to Black women in college. And college is used very loosely, like community college, vocational college, culinary school, all of that matters. If you're a chef and you're going to school and you want to work at the State Department or White House, that's politics and public service. Um, so we are um, 
looking right now, how people can help really is getting the word out. Um, applications are down this year. I think just like everything else, um, applications are down this year. And so we opened it up nationwide. So even if you're, you know, interning in your city government, we want to make sure that we let people know that local politics is important. And you shouldn't have to say, I want to go to the Hill or be in DC, the elitism of it to actually get a scholarship and want to change. You want, want to do something at home, right? Um, and so that's, you know, that's the background 44 scholarship. It is a hundred 105 Black women who contributed, 52 $100. Um, we also are going to have a mentoring program for them all. They'll all get a mentor. Everyone who applied will get a mentor um, to help them guide them from their internship to a career in politics and public service, or they change their mind and want to do something else, right? To be there to guide them. And with how I look at mentorship is like, very active, like introducing you to people. Like, I'm not going to give you a TED talk. You could Google a TED talk. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to actually say like, what resources do you need? Who do you need to meet and where? And so that we give them an intern survival kit, which is just like some cookies and some other fun like mugs and stuff like that. Um, but then we ask that they become part of the advisory committee that helps us then give out the scholarship the following year. So all the ladies who won in 2019, they're helping run this process. Um, and so, and they have a, you know, we have a whole way of workshops and we have so much y'all. I just need to stop for real, but like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's too much. Like it's too much. Cause when you want to do something else, like, you know, like I keep them doing the scholarship, but I, we have a great student team in place, but it's still like under my jurisdiction. So I've been trying to, you know, give stuff away here and there. Um, but I think it's necessary. I think, especially right now, um, while we have a Black woman as the VP, you know, I think that um, people, Black women, especially the last four years have sat out in politics and public service because the administration, I mean, I think anybody with sense pretty much did. And so, you know, now they want to get involved, right? And and I want to make sure I'm there for them, make sure I give them resources, but also we don't let finances become a burden to them starting a career in politics. Can you plug where people should go if they're interested in applying? Yes, people should go to impactofavote.com, impactofavote.com. And that is the, the, I told y'all do a lot. That is the organization that is over Black Girl 44. Um, but Impact of a Vote is something I started to help non-traditional students like myself, like Darian, like all of us who came in like untraditional, get them into politics and public service. And so we have like a mentoring program called Call and Response. We have White House workshops to be interns. And we also go into vocational schools and do like a White House hospitality week. So like from my schedule in advanced days, if somebody works in the hotel industry and they want to learn about doing, you know, diplomacy and whatnot, you know, that's a career. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like you can do that mm -hmm. too. And so we do that with all the high school students that are in vocational schools. So yeah. Well, just to make our listeners dizzy, I'm going to talk about something else you've done, which is while on fellowship at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, you taught a class called From Imposter to Impact, I which did. is a great name that I especially appreciate as a Kennedy School alumni myself. In closing, <laughs> what would you say to our listeners is the most important lesson your students walked away with? Um, yeah, you know, I think the most important lesson I think goes back to um, the worthiness, the worth, your, your worth and who you are. I think that oftentimes we psych ourselves out of opportunities because we think we're not enough. And this problem is extremely deep. And I think that we gloss over it with little sayings. We gloss over it with like empowerment things. 
And we don't realize how deep seated this is. And so when I taught my course, it was interesting because I went in with a completely different course when I applied and it was more about diplomacy and this, that, and the other and state dinners. And, you know, the staff said, you know, our students really like probably would, they probably need your imposter conversations a little bit more, even though they're at Harvard. And so I think that what I would say is that, you know, I know people hear that they're, they're, they are enough all of the time, but I think that digging into like getting therapy, learning what in your past, like digging up the root of like why you feel this way about yourself, because you can't continue again, like, you know, being like, I'm going to fix this by a good saying or, you know, a slogan, you know, if you don't fix the root of where it even came from, you know, getting a grounds crew to always keep you like lift you up and love you and get your foundation secure. But I think that listening to other people, comparing yourself to other people um, is a problem. And so, you know, I tell my students to stop doing that. But really for me, it's just that like, we are beautiful and dope people who we are. And we're not used to telling ourselves that because we say that and we say, but this, but this, like, no, there's no, but that like, you are like literally worthy of your own compliments. You know, that's why, like, especially like, I know I do with Darian all the time, like her pictures, I'm like, girl, you look bomb. Like compliment mm-hmm. your friends. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. let your friends know how amazing they are and beautiful that they are and also learn to do it for yourself. And, and that's hard, but I think that takes a lot of mental health work and don't be afraid to do that mental health work. Like we all, everybody shouldn't be in therapy. Like everybody, I feel like everybody yes. should be in therapy. And I feel like it's like, you know, don't be afraid to say I need help. You know, we're seeing college suicides really on the rise. And it's just like, you know, they feel this pressure, you know, and give yourself grace to change. You know, you're not the same 18 year old student. You're not going to walk out the same. And that's a good thing. That's not bad. You know, so give yourself that grace to change, to realize what you like and don't like. Um, I love teaching that class because like every week I'd have different students like come after me after and be like, thank you so much. I feel like I shouldn't be at Harvard. I don't belong here. And I'd be like, but you're here. You know, and I felt that way at the White House, but I was next to people who had an Ivy League degree. We were there together. You know what I mean? So um, that's what I try to tell students. But, you know, they all come to me individually with different issues. And so I try to address them like that, too. So, yeah. Deisha Dyer, we love you. We love I, you. I love y'all so. I love y'all so much. I'm so happy I'm with you. I love y'all. We could talk forever. I love I'm, y'all. I'm gonna I, keep I, trying to get. I'm gonna keep trying to root for a democracy that respects all people and and uh, and a America that is truly what all of us want and deserve. Yes. Well, you, Joanna, I I expect you know- nothing less from you. You know what I mean? Lady over here. So, you know what, Joanna? Like it works like for you, and I think that like there is a niche for everybody. And so, Joanna, like you know, I got your back, girl. Can't walk that walk right now, but I got your back. Sa- always, same, same here. We got each other's back. Always, always, oh. always. It's no understatement. You are seriously one of our most dynamic and inspirational former colleagues. And thank you so much for coming on Pod as a Woman. Thank you. Oh, thank y'all are dynamic. You. Thank you. Thank you for having me. As you can tell, there's a lot of love between us Obama girls, and we were so happy to have Disha join us today and tell us about her path and her story. She is one of my favorite guests, so so glad to have her be a part of this journey for us. I remember when we all left the Obama White House, I thought all of us were kind of at the 
start of our journeys of change. So, you know, I think we all continue and we can see her doing so much in so many ways to build. And I am all about building. So (laughs) love, love, love watching that. What you all didn't see or hear is that after we finished the interview, the three of us spent probably another 10 to 15 minutes talking with Disha because it's, it's that nice to see her after all this time. And truly, to your point, Johanna, to kind of watch what everyone's done over the past 10 years has been really, really fascinating and meaningful because you knew that you were working with special people back then when we were all at the White House, but to see how it wasn't lip service. Everyone's commitment to community and to change was sincere and continues to be a driver in their life, like it is for our POTUS of the week as well. And our POTUS this week goes to Alana Banks of Decatur, Illinois, my home state, Johanna's home state. Alana is the first black and openly trans woman to be elected to a school board in the United States. So congratulations to her. We know she's going to do amazing things for her district. And our shout out this week goes to Tony Bredinger. The 21-year-old made history in February when she became NASCAR's first Arab-American female driver. And she is also now the all-time winningest female driver in the United States Auto Club. This weekend, she will make her debut at the famed Talladega Super Speedway. We wish her the very best. We have another great show lined up for you next week. As always, Pod is a Woman is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be well. Be well.